Please stand as you are able for today's New Testament lesson from the book of John, chapter 4, verse 4 through 26. Now Jesus had to go through Samaria. He came to a Samaritan city called Sychar, which was near the land Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. Jesus was tired from his journey, so he sat down at the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to the well to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me some water to drink. His disciples had gone into the city to buy him some food. The Samaritan woman asked, Why do you, a Jewish man, ask for something to drink from me, a Samaritan woman? Jews and Samaritans did not associate with each other. Jesus responded, If you recognize God's gift and who is saying to you, Give me some water to drink, you would be asking him, and he would be giving you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you don't have a bucket, and the well is deep. Where would you get this living water? You aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? He, he gave us this well, and he drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give will become in those who drink it a spring of water that bubbles up into eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will never be thirsty and will never need to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go get your husband and come back here. The woman replied, I don't have a husband. You are right to say, I don't have a husband, Jesus answered. You have five husbands, and the man you are with now isn't your husband. You've spoken the truth. The woman said, Sir, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you and your people say that it is necessary to worship in Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, Believe me, woman, the time is coming when you and your people will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You and your people will worship what you don't know. We worship what we know because salvation is from the Jews. But the time is coming and is here when the true worshipers will worship in spirit and truth. The Father looks for those who worship him his, this way. God is spirit, and it is necessary to worship God in spirit and truth. The woman said, I know that the Messiah is coming, the one who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will teach everything to us. Jesus said to her, I am the one who speaks with you. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Lonnie, for reading our lesson and grace and peace to each of you in the name of Christ. Uh, it is so good to be with you on another rainy Sabbath day on this, the third Sunday of our pilgrimage that we call Lent as the days begin to lengthen. And we are now just three weeks from Palm Sunday, Passion Sunday, that we will begin our journey together. Jonathan, thank you for leading us, for your prayer. Uh, to all of our musicians, Greg, Ryan, Patsy, uh, to our Joy Sound and Chancel Choir, we're so grateful for you and for the fellowship that we enjoy uh, in this place today. Uh, if you're new to Brentwood today, we are joining us in the middle of a series that we're choosing to call Cross Culture, a Lenten series. And I mentioned last week from the outset that in the Gospel of John, in the fourth Gospel, there are no less than 11 conversations that happen between Jesus and others, some coming to Jesus, some of the times Jesus coming to them. 
And last week, we looked at John 3, which is the Nicodemus story. Nicodemus, you remember, was a card-carrying member of the Sanhedrin. He was a Pharisee, which literally means in the Greek, serious one. He was an elite religious teacher and elder with impeccable credentials and character. He came to Jesus at night which means he couldn't be seen by his peers in the Sanhedrin with this radical, controversial rabbi from Galilee. And so he came at night, but at least he came. And we know the end of the story, that when you get to the end of the Gospel of John, John 19, it was Nicodemus, along with Joseph of Arimathea, both of whom were members of the ruling council who took care of Jesus' remains, taking his body off the cross to the tomb And of course, they experienced Easter Sunday. We also know of Nicodemus that at the end of his story, he had become a believer and tradition says that he became a martyr because of his witness. But in John chapter four, the story is completely different. This encounter that Lonnie just read for us involves a person of such questionable character that even the disciples were appalled. If word of this little rendezvous at Jacob's well goes public and reaches the synagogue, Jesus' reputation is gonna be history. I remember something, I think Benjamin Franklin said it, it takes many good deeds to build a good reputation, but it only takes one bad one to lose it. I remember the old adage from the old basketball coach, John Wooden, who said, reputation is what people think you are, but character is what you really are. Jesus' reputation among the religious leaders was already suffering. We know this because in the synoptic gospels, it's already being said of Jesus, he is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend to sinners and tax collectors. Sometimes, and this is just me, this is probably not you, but sometimes we in the clergy in particular become more concerned about appearances than authenticity. In other words, sometimes even the church, we're more more concerned about how something looks than how it really is. But in this case, Jesus is more concerned about relationships than he is his own reputation. The Lord is more concerned about people than posturing. And I think you can see this from the very beginning of the story, verse four. Now Jesus had to go through Samaria. That's not a geographical comment. That is a missional initiative. That's a mission statement. He had to go. Let me explain. Some of you who have been with us to Israel and on your own trips know that if you're traveling, which Jesus was, traveling south to north from Jerusalem to Galilee, where he lived, that the straightest route is right through Samaria, right? That's the quickest route to Galilee, but it's not the only route. The truth is that most Jews in the first century would have veered east around Samaria. They would have gone through Perea and Decapolis to get to Galilee just to keep from setting foot 
in Sumerian soil, but not Jesus. Jesus' map quest never bypasses human need. On the contrary, it goes right into the thick of human need. So on the way, Jesus and friends going north now, they find a little rest stop in a place called Sychar. Sherry and I have been there. This is modern-day Nablus, which is a Palestinian city in a rough place on the West Bank. Jacob's well is there. My wife and I drank from Jacob's well. And while the disciples go into town to find a Chick-fil-A, Jesus is resting. He's tired. It's interesting that John wants us to know he's tired because this man who's weary, the chapter before, just turned water into wine, which is significant of his divinity, but he's also tired and needs rest, which is representative of his humanity. While he's resting by the well, a Samaritan woman comes to draw water. And John, again, who is a detailed hound, wants us to know that she came at noon. And that's odd. The normal time for women, and it would have been women, to draw water was early in the morning or late in the afternoon. It was their way of making sure that through the day and through the night, that their kids, their family had water for washing and cleaning. But she comes at noon, and that's odd. We'll come back to that in a minute. The well was also a kind of a social hub for community. It was the meeting place. 50 years ago, we would have called it the post office, where people met and greeted one another. You might call it Starbucks. Or, or the coffee house. In the Old Testament, a well was also a dating place. It was a place where young men and women could meet. We know that because in Genesis, it was Abraham's servant who at a well secured Rebekah for his son Isaac to marry. It was at a well where Rachel met Jacob and Zipporah met Moses. This is the original eHarmony. And here at Jacob's well, a Samaritan woman meets the one whom John the Baptist calls the bridegroom. Now, you know what that means. So the bridegroom is a metaphor for God, but also a metaphor for the Messiah. And what I'm beginning to wonder is when this woman meets the Messiah at the well, the one to come, that perhaps Jesus is about to bring into his family Samaritans. Now, on the surface of this scene, it is absolutely scandalous. The dialogue begins with Jesus asking this woman for a drink. And I have to tell you, in the first century culture, there are all kinds of things wrong with that. And you see it in her response. Even she is taken aback that Jesus is asking her for a drink. She says, how is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? And I want to submit to you that there are at least three things wrong with this scenario. Number one, Jews and Samaritans don't talk to each other. They despise each other. Number two, men are not to be alone with women. And third, Jesus is a man of the cloth. Jesus is a rabbi, and so this whole scene is kind of unseemly, and the disciples are thinking, wait till the Pharisees catch wind of this. 
in the Jerusalem Gazette, it's not going to come out well. But worst of all, Jesus doesn't have a bucket. She has the bucket, which means if she obliges Jesus's request, Jesus is going to drink from her cup and Jews and Samaritans do not share utensils. I remember when we were in Lawrenceville, we had some boys in our subdivision that had a little lemonade stand and I stopped and gave them a couple of dollars and they gave me a cup of lemonade and they said, pastor, we're sorry, but you'll have to drink that here. And I said, really, why? And he said, because we only have one cup. I didn't drink that lemonade. <laughs> Jews and Samaritans don't drink from the same water fountain. One of the most respected rabbis of the first century, Rabbi Eliezer, once said, he who eats the bread of the Samaritans and drinks from their cup is worse than swine. In other words, it's unkosher, it's uncouth, and Jesus is crossing the line. He's breaking all the rules. I'm talking socially, I'm talking culturally, I'm talking anthropologically, I'm talking theologically, ceremonially, ritually. Jesus is crossing the line. And I wanna come back to noon. Later on, we find out why she came at noon. She came at the hottest portion of the day because she knew that nobody else would be there at that time. This woman has a reputation. This woman's been shunned by her own people. She's been marginalized. And later when Jesus asks about her husband, she says, I don't have a husband, which is true. And Jesus commends her for her honesty. And then he reveals his divine knowledge. He says, you are right. When you say you have no husband, you, in fact, you've had five husbands and the man that you're living with now is not your spouse. Now, I wanna tell you at this point, this doesn't necessarily mean that this woman is promiscuous. It may mean that she's been rejected. You, you say, where, where are you getting this? If you know the culture in the Torah, women could not make a contract. They could not, by law, enter a contract. Only the men could. So a woman could not, on her own, divorce her husband, which means she may have been rejected five times in five marriages. And the guy she's currently living with doesn't love her enough to propose. Now, it's hard to imagine the mental, the social, the spiritual, the economic impact of that kind of rejection. It's brutal. And so she chooses to come to the meeting place, the well at noon, because she wants to be in isolation. She doesn't want to see people. She, she wants to avoid people. And so she comes alone. I read recently that the U.S. Health and Services Administration has declared a loneliness epidemic in our country. They cite the increasing phenomena of these things, no participation in social groups, fewer friends, and strained relationships 
as the culprit. Indeed, for healthcare companies today, loneliness is driving up premiums. The insurance company that we're with, Cigna, has devoted significant resources to understanding why social isolation is increasing, and they have found statistically that 46% of Americans feel that their relationships are not meaningful. U.S. Surgeon General Vivek Murthy has written a book about this called Together, which states in the first words of the book, I have a copy of this on the slide, during my years caring for patients, the most common condition I saw was not heart disease or diabetes, it was loneliness. One doctor friend even told me a while back that he has patients who come to him basically just to have someone that they can talk to with whom they can be completely honest. That's why she came at noon. I've been told this before, particularly by people who've been through a difficult relationship, either divorced or transitioned or widowed, that sometimes the loneliest place in the world is at church. And so it becomes very important that we never leave out this door without looking someone in the eye and hugging a neck and shaking a hand and saying, I care about you. Lonely, she came at noon. Now there may be a deeper meaning to this story. It's often the case in John's gospel because there's a, there's a surface meaning and then there's a hidden meaning. This is constant in John's gospel. It's almost Pentecostal, it's deeply spiritual. And so I think there's a deeper meaning. Let me try this out with you. I wanna give you some history between Jews and Samaritans, the division. In ancient days, and I'm talking 8th century BC, Samaria was the capital city of Israel, which was the northern kingdom, and that kingdom was populated exclusively by Jews. But in the year 722 BC, the Assyrians conquered Israel and expelled the leading citizens, including the Jewish rabbis and priests, and they repopulated the city of Samaria with people, get this, from five different nations. You see the commonality, five husbands, five nations. Each nation bringing their own gods, their own forms of worship, mores, morals, etc. Years later, the Assyrian Empire allowed the Jewish rabbis and priests to return, and they built a temple not unlike the one in Jerusalem at a mountain called Mount Gerizim. But the end result of the Assyrian takeover was a co-opting of Jewish faith that was abhorrent to the southern kingdom of Judea. The Judean Jews considered the Samaritans a mongrel people, half-breeds who lost their distinction as God's chosen ones. So get this, in the second century BC, the Judean Jews came to Mount Gerizim and destroyed their temple. So this woman with five husbands personifies the Samaritans who are a mix of five different nations and considered by their Jewish cousins adulterous, idolatrous, and unfaithful. 
So while most Jews went out of their way to avoid Sumerian soil, Jesus went directly to them. He had to go through Samaria. This man without a bucket had Samaria on his bucket list. And it's no wonder that Jesus' kinsmen looked on him with such disdain because now he's not just eating with sinners and tax collectors, he's drinking with a Samaritan woman. And I wonder just, Jesus, how low can you go? The law of incarnation is not upwardly mobile. God in flesh is downwardly mobile. He comes down to where we are and loves us and gives himself for us. And then watch what happens. I love this part. In this Galilean bridegroom, this woman finally meets a man she can trust. And I want you to notice the progression of her understanding of who he is by the labels that she uses about Jesus. First, she says he's a Jew. Next, she says in conversation, he's a rabbi. Then she says, you're a prophet. Then she calls him Messiah. And at the last, she calls him savior of the world. Something happened in that encounter. And her response, what does she do? She goes back to town and she leaves her bucket at the well. She came out for water and she's forgotten now why she came because there's a deeper thirst that's been quenched. So she runs home to tell her neighbors what has happened and there's a before and after to before Jesus and after Jesus in this woman that I love. Before Jesus, she couldn't even face her peers at the meeting place. And after Jesus, she interfaces the entire town, giving her witness, come and see a man who told me everything I've ever done. And when you look at her witness, it's really not that effective. It's really not that great because she ends her witness with a question mark. Could he be the Messiah? She just raises the question. But it's obvious in her demeanor and in her countenance to her peers, that she who was once rejected, who was once lonely and unloved, has found what she was looking for at a wishing well in her encounter with living water. And she wasn't even looking for Jesus, but Jesus was looking for her. One other word, and I'm, I'm finished. Dr. Fred Craddock was my preaching professor at Emory University in the mid-80s. He's from Humboldt, Tennessee. Was one of the finest men I've ever known. He once told a story about a family that was out for a Sunday afternoon drive. Two kids, mom and dad. They had the windows down, the wind blowing through their hair. It was a wonderful day. And they were just relaxing a Sunday drive at a leisurely pace on the highway when suddenly the two children behind in the back seat began to beat on their father's back. And they said, Daddy, stop the car. He said, what is it? There's a kitten back there on the side of the road. And the father said, not going there. We, we're having a nice drive. And he kept going. But Daddy, they said, we got to stop. You got to pick it up. He said, we don't, 
We're not going to stop. We're having a nice drive. We're going to keep going. Daddy, if you don't stop, it'll die. Well, then he said callously, uh, it'll have to die. We don't have room for another critter. Our whole house is a zoo. Daddy, they said, we never thought our father would be so mean and cruel as to leave that little kitten to die. And finally, the mother, with good sense, turns to her husband and says, turn the car around. (laughs) And he did. Turned around, pulled off the shoulder, goes out to pick up this poor little kitten whose skin and bones, uh, who's sore-eyed and full of fleas and And when he reaches down to pick it up, it bristles and hisses and bearing tooth and claws. And he picks it up by the loose skin of the neck and brings it to the car, puts it in the car and says to the kids, don't touch it. He's probably got leprosy. Don't don't get near him. And suddenly their nice Sunday drive is over. When they get to the house, the kids give it a bath, about a gallon of warm milk, and again, pleading with Father, Daddy, please let, let us keep him in the house, please, just for tonight. Tomorrow we'll fix him a place in the garage. And the father gives up and says, just take my bedroom. <laughs> Whole house is a zoo. And they fix it a bed fit for a pharaoh. And the weeks pass, and then one day, after work, the father walks in and feels something rubbing up against his leg. And he looks down and there's a cat. (laughs) He reaches down carefully to see that nobody's looking and it doesn't claw, it doesn't hiss, it just arches its back to receive a caress. And he's thinking to himself, is that the same cat? (laughs) It can't be the same cat. Is that the same one as the, the frightened, by the road, lonely, hurt, hissing kitten? But it was the same and completely different. And suddenly that father knew what his children had already known, that love makes all the difference. Dr. Craddock ended that story by saying this, not long ago, God reached out a hand to bless me and my family. And when he did, I looked at that hand and it was covered with scratches. Such is the hand of love extended to those on the side of the road, even Samaritans and sinners like me and you. And you can't ever be the same. There's some things we do because we want to But there are some things we do because we have to. And sometimes, by the grace of God, your have to becomes your want to. And it makes all the difference. To the glory of God, may it be so.